How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 120 of X-Labs, where we are just on the... We're teetering on the very edge of the first half of our X of Tens coverage today. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at an issue of X-Men. X-Men Volume 5, number 13, which had a December 2020 cover date. Stories called X of Swords, Chapter 10, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mahmoud Azrar. Colors, Sonny Go. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, B. So White Sabalski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale October 21st of 2020. It's weird, we're, uh, we're actually getting to the last couple of uh, 2020 cover-dated books here. So uh, we'll be in the 2021s, at least in cover dates, before we know it. All right, let's open this one up. We start with our roll call here, and uh, it's one of those roll calls, I mean... I like the fact that this is a roll call. Uh, I tried reading a recent issue of Avengers, and they didn't have a roll call, and I was just like, who are these people? You know, I, I've read the Avengers for like 20 years, and I'm looking at this new issue that tied in with the Phoenix coming back or whatever it was, and boy, it was, a, it was tough. It was tough to the point where I'm not going to go back and continue reading that because it was just so labyrinthine. But we kind of swing the pendulum all the way to the other edge here, and we do a roll call to feature characters who might be shown on panel once. I mean, I don't... There are characters in here that I don't even recall seeing on the page, so uh, let's do it. Uh, Banshee, Apocalypse, Dr. Cecilia Reyes, Healer, Beast, Polaris, Charles Xavier, Hope, Magneto, and Gorgon. Then we get our double-page spread of creds as per usual. Now, we're not quite ready for comics content yet. We've got an info page. It's about the Grass Cutter and God Killer Swords. And it's a pretty short page, considering it's covering two of our prophesied swords. And it's worth noting that these two swords will not be seen in this issue. Okay. Finally, you know, all these pages in, we get the comic book content here. So, that opens at the Healing Gardens, where Banshee is shown recovering from the attack that was revealed during X of Swords' creation. He turns his head in the direction of his fellow patient, who is screaming in agony. This patient, of course, is Apocalypse. Now, it would appear as though that nothing the Morlock healer nor Cecilia Reyes can do is actually helping old A. And he's just thrashing like crazy. Uh, Magneto asks Polaris to use her powers to pin Pocky down, and so she does. Though why Magneto himself couldn't do it? Search me, I don't know. Maybe it was a power play. I don't know. Xavier asks Hope to attempt to augment the healer's powers, you know, to maybe make him a little bit more powerful to help with Apocalypse's recovery, and with Apocalypse's blessing, or I guess his demand, she does. 
Now, while he writhes around on the healer's table, he unfortunately wanders directly into flashback land. Uh, This is your Okara trigger warning, if in case you need one. Now, Apocalypse's story from the long ago begins by mentioning that when war came, a pair of icons with a K, I-K-O-N-S, of Okara uh, were both A, the twin elementals of life, whatever that means, and B, the first to fall. Now, there were tens of thousands of warriors who broke through into, I'm assuming, Okara. Maybe ancient Egypt, considering where this issue winds up. I'm not entirely clear on that. These are, of course, the ones from Amanth, right? We read about those not too long ago. Anyway, they were fought back time and again by the 100, and we learned a bit about them during either Exosword's creation or X-Men number 12. It's all kind of muddy. We're getting a lot of exposition. Now, they're the ones who were led by the White Sword. Now, he was that, you know, big, hulking, titan-looking fellow who the creepy summoner told us would resurrect his warriors over and over again. Now, these hundred would head into the Rift to do battle, and Apocalypse was not among them. Next, he speaks of Genesis, and she is described as being stronger than anyone. His story jumps ahead to what appears to be an attempt at holding a peace summit between his crew and the Amanthes, or Amenthes, however you say that. Apocalypse's crew consists of the original Four Horsemen, his children, of course, uh, Genesis, his wife, and a high summoner, but not the same one that we know. Obviously, this is a long time ago. Now, this place that they're all set up here kind of looks like the Quiet Council's quarters, and there are two trees with faces on them here in the background. One has red eyes, the other with more yellowish-white eyes. Perhaps they represent the two halves of Okara, you know, Krakoa and Arako. Maybe they're the fallen icons. Maybe they're both. Maybe they're neither. Who knows? Now, the Amanthes, they present a box. Now, this box demands itself be opened. And it transforms into the very Hickmany antlered helmet of Annihilation. It attaches itself to one of the Amenthes to do a little bit of pontification. Then, two generic-looking Hickman aliens, uh, Hork and Dai Damun, uh, try and test the mutants. Only to be swiftly taken out by Genesis. It sounds like the mutants might have had this battle in hand, at least for now. That is, until Iska the Unbeaten turned on them. Now, we learned about her, sorta, in X-Men number 12. You know, she's that Brotherhood of Dada-seeming character with the mutant ability to never lose. But there's a new wrinkle added here to her story. In fact, she's Genesis's... Genesis's... How do you say that? Genesis's... Genesis's... She's Apocalypse's wife's sister, is what I'm trying to say here. And so I guess she's Apocalypse's sister-in-law. So, the fact that she's now on the side of the Amenthi, or she would eventually be on the side of the Amenthi, and cannot lose, is perhaps a bit problematic for our heroes. And, I mean, do we do we refer to Apocalypse as a hero? I, I guess it's all context-sensitive. I don't know. So, from here, the, jo- the story jumps a little bit further ahead, to Genesis and the Horsemen heading through the rift to fight back the Amenthi. Apocalypse, again, does not join them, as, in the words of his wife, he isn't strong enough. Oof. And she instead tells him to remain on Earth and make it so mankind might one day be prepared should the Amenthi ever break through the rift again. Kind of gives Apocalypse's Darwinian tact some context here, you know, the whole only the strong survive and all. 
And I mean, this is probably contradicting decades of established continuity, but that's kind of what we do nowadays, isn't it? From here, we get an info page about Annihilation. Whoever wears the helmet rules a menth. The only problem is the helmet pretty much consumes whoever's wearing it. Back to comics, and we're back to the present. Apocalypse survives the augmented healing and is back on his feet. He excuses himself to go retrieve his sword for the upcoming contest. From here, hey, you tired of info pages yet? Because we got another. It's about the Scarab Sword. This is a sword that is crafted in four parts to celebrate the births of each of Apocalypse's original horsemen, his children. This blade altogether was forged by Iska the Unbeatable, or the Unbeaten, or whatever the hell we're calling her, Apocalypse's sister-in-law. Next, we know we're in Egypt at the foot of a pyramid. Apocalypse and Gorgon arrive. I don't know why Gorgon's there. Maybe Apocalypse can't fly this jet. I don't know. Now, the former tells the latter to wait for him outside. Apocalypse is going to go in by himself. He comes across the tombs of his thought-to-be long-dead children, and he smashes them to reveal the four pieces of the Scarab Sword. He puts them together to create his prophesied blade, and he and Gorgon head back home, and that's it. That's it. That's the end of this issue. Next, hey, we're officially, I think officially, halfway through this thing, we're going to be looking at X of Swords Stasis. But let's talk about, uh, let's talk about this issue, shall we? Okay, um, this one did take a couple of reads, uh, but unlike X-Men number 12, it actually improved upon reread. Uh, X-Men 12 only got more and more muddy the longer I looked at it. I wanted to throw it out, out the window. Now, don't get me wrong, this issue was still fillery as hell. It felt very, very fillery, but I certainly enjoyed it more than the previous issue of X-Men. Uh, which is to say I mostly understood it, whereas number 12 was just a gigantic mess jammed into a bag five times too small. So what do we get here? What do we get here? Well, we sort of get a retelling of what we read in number 12, but without the ambiguities of the creepy and likely factually unreliable summoner telling it. Quite why we needed both? I don't know. They had issues to fill, I guess. I don't know. Um... <laughs> You know, when, when Hickman took over these books, and when I started this project, I, uh, I got a lot of flack early on for daring to question the process. You know, uh, Hickman is known for his long, labyrinthine stories that are planned out to, to, to play out over years, right? And uh, I dared to question it. And yes, I am an overthinker, and I'm oddly protective of my continuity, so much of it is justified, right? So, so much of the flack is justified. But I feel as though one of my concerns is starting to uh, peek its head out here. Um, one thing I've mentioned a bunch, even today, was uh, the generic Hickman aliens, right? The stupid, boring, antler-headed, you know, geeks from his Avengers run. Yeah, the, these are ciphers. Very little characterization and a mildly cool look. Introduced into the lore for reasons that will only be important for, like, one story. And what we're doing here with the X-Men, it's a way that fundamentally changes everything, right? These characters that we're getting, this Akarin, Arakin, Krakoan lore, uh, the change of what it means to be a mutant, it fundamentally changes everything. And I still can't shake the feeling that, it, that these characters that we're meeting right now will only be important for the story in which they do change everything, right? We've got the Amenthes, we've got Annihilation, the original Horsemen, the Summoners, Genesis, Iska. These are characters who, 
I fear will only be important for this one story. And again, this is a story that fundamentally changes everything about what the word mutant means to the Marvel Universe, right? I think we've all heard of concepts like addition by subtraction. This is kind of the inverse of that. This feels like subtraction by addition. We're adding stuff that will only be important now. But it'll also kind of deepen the niche of the X-Men, making it near impossible for the next creative team to write their way out of it without massive contradictions or a full-scale reboot. Which was my other concern with Hickman when I heard he was taking over the X-Men, because it seems like the only way to follow him on a book is to reboot. Or to take advantage of a Marvel reboot. And I mean... It's not as though the sword of Rebooticles isn't dangling over our heads, right? This is Marvel Comics. So I suppose it is lucky for creators that Marvel normally can't go more than a few months without throwing in, you know, everything you thought you knew was wrong sort of wrench into their lore. But still, this is kind of troubling. And it's not like, uh, you know, Hickman and company are at a lack of dangling plot threads that could be addressed, right? I mean, we've had so many new things introduced since uh, Hoxpox. And and here we are building lore for concepts that will only be important right now. It's like, there's so much backstory to draw from, but instead we're making new backstory that we're going to address immediately, and we're going to just... It's like... It's like a boxed lunch, right? We're taking it, and it's just like we insert it, and it's ready to go. I I don't know, and I'm having a real hard time investing. I'm having a hard time caring. Uh, it's like... I mean, we talk, we talk a lot about stakes on this show, and now there are actual stakes to this fight, but now it feels like, well, there are stakes because we're telling you there's stakes, rather than it being an organic feeling of fear or trepidation or worry for these characters in the future. It's just like, oh, we're told that there are stakes now, so I guess we should be prepared to face you know, the, the consequences of, of anything that happens from this point on. And it just feels so half-hearted. These new villains we have, the, uh, the Amenthes and the, the Horsemen, I mean, they're just more... Generic, semi-cool-looking characters here. They could be aliens, they could be plant people, they could be a bag of laundry. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because they're only important for right this very minute. And it's, uh, I don't know, maybe this uh, this first half of uh, Exoswords, maybe it's drug on a little bit too long for me. It just feels, it's almost feeling like a chore. And uh, I don't like that feeling. But I guess I'll put a pin in it for now here, rather than uh, repeat myself over and over and over again. We will uh, just hope for a more exciting second half, uh, post-stasis, I suppose. But uh, those are my thoughts on X-Men number 13. Feels like filler. Feels like we're really dragging this out to uh, fill as many pages and to get to... I don't know, maybe we needed to get just just the right amount of pages to get an extra priced hardcover collection. Or maybe it's supposed to be two volumes or something, and we're really just stretching this sucker thin. But, uh, yeah, those are my thoughts on it. Uh, before we go to the mailbag here, this was the final uh, Dawn of X Wave 1 number 13. So, let's take a look at our Dawn of X Wave 1 number 13 power rankings here. Uh, there are only five books, and uh, they were all... X of Swords related, for better or for worse. I would say the best book of the bunch was Marauders. 
which uh, I didn't love. I didn't love it. Um, this was a storm in Wakanda. I thought it was a little. I thought it was a little long. Plus, I'm not quite as enamored with Wakanda as a lot of people are or seem to be. Uh, the second best book was New Mutants. Doug Ramsey uh, learning how to use his sword and fighting magic. And really, I mean, I didn't care for that one much either. That one felt very fillery. It felt like we were. It felt very repetitive. It's it's the same Doug Ramsey story we always get, you know. So I mean, this is basically Marauders is number one, and then everything else is kind of tied for number two here. So it's uh, these. I guess these rankings are semi-arbitrary. Um, so Marauders number one, New Mutants number two, number three is Excalibur, and I didn't care for that one either. Uh, that one was a. Uh, that one felt like it was missing pages, as Excalibur usually does. The fourth best book was this one. And, uh, yeah, I didn't like this one much either. And the fifth book of the of the uh, Dawn of X, Wave 1, number 13s, was X-Force. The second part of the Wolverine Goes to Hell story, which was, eh, not great at all. So I, I don't know if I need to change the name of this show to, you know, 30 minutes of Chris complaining about the X-Men. Uh, maybe that'd be more appropriate. But uh, not a strong outing for our uh, our legacy books here with their 13th issues. Marauders, New Mutants, Excalibur, X-Men, then X-Force. Um, hope to hear your guys' rankings, and uh, if you guys agree, disagree, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, speaking of hearing your thoughts, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien talking about X-Factor number four. He says, this issue was so good, I loved it. It was such a good idea for the Resurrection Protocols to be removed to add extra stakes to the crossover. Yes, 100%. 100% X-Factor number 4 was a wonderful issue. And, uh, I, you know, the Dawn of X Wave 2 books are really, like, doing the heavy lifting for this uh, Exoswords event. Between, uh, between X-Factor and uh, Hellions, uh, and to a lesser extent Cable... Those have been the stronger issues uh, so far. And Damien continues, I was particularly happy with Lorna's characterization, and that leads directly into my X-Men vote. Marvel have been releasing the votes so far, and Polaris is in the lead with Banshee coming second. They've announced that whoever wins will only appear in X-Men, so ultimately I have to decide whether to vote for Polaris to move to X-Men, where she could be written as she was written in X-Men number one and X of Swords creation, or... I can vote for the character in second place in the hope that she continues to be written as well as in X-Factor number four. I voted for Banshee. So did I. <laughs> I voted for Banshee too. Uh, mostly because, uh, you know, I don't think in the entire time I've been reading, like an active reader of X-Men comics, I don't think Banshee was ever like an official member of the team. Uh, which is weird. Because he kind of left... He left, I think, before I was even born. <laughs> you know, he was there. He was the old man during Giant Size, right? So he wasn't there very long. And uh, I think it would be neat to see him on the team. It's not like he's doing anything right now besides laying in the healing gardens. And Polaris, I mean, I've given Leia Williams a bit of guff over dialogue and characterization in these uh, in the first three issues of X-Factor. I thought it was kind of rough, as, uh, as I've mentioned time and again. But here... In X-Factor number four, uh, really, really good Lorna. Really good Lorna, and it would be a shame to lose Lorna to X from X-Factor to X-Men, where she'd have to be written by Hickman. <laughs> and I mean, that's a... Ugh, you know, I, I, I hate being the contrarian guy here, but ugh. 
another thing about Leo Williams, um, I'm doing. <laughs> it's embarrassing. I've been collecting as many uh, Jeff the Shark, Jeff the Land Shark appearances as possible here. I don't know if I'll ever do like a Jeff Lapsed show, as you know, it's like a little funny haha aside to this program. But uh, I've been collecting them all. Just uh, Jeff the Land Shark. Uh, I've I've just found uh, quite an affinity for the character and uh, want to get all of his appearances here, which required that I bought an issue of, uh, or actually uh, several issues of Gwenpool Strikes Back, which is a book that I would have bet money would never, ever, ever enter my door. <laughs> you know, I would never have an issue of Gwenpool in my long box. But uh, I sat down with it this morning, and, and Jeff the Landshark is only a little cameo in there, but uh, I didn't know Gwenpool's gimmick. I thought she was, because for the longest time there, it felt like we were getting new alternate versions of Gwen Stacy over and over and over again. So I thought this was just another take on Gwen Stacy, like sort of a, a, you know, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What if Gwen Stacy was Deadpool? She's not. She's not Gwen Stacy. Her name is actually Gwen Poole, P-O-O-L-E. And she's from our world, you know, the real, you know, I guess DC would call it Earth Prime or Earth... Was it Earth Prime? Whatever it was. Wherever Superboy Prime was from, I'm guessing it would be Earth Prime. But uh, her gimmick was that she, you know, went into the Marvel Universe from our world. And she has no powers, but she's read all the comics, so she knows secret identities. She knows all sorts of stuff. And it makes me feel kind of dirty to say this, but I I loved it. I thought it was so funny. Um, and this was Leia Williams, who I was just, like, really kind of cringing over her first few issues of X-Factor. And what's more, it was David Baldion on art, and it was fantastic art. It really, really fit the tone of the book, and I, I adored it there. Um, there was a scene in that first issue of Gwenpool Strikes Back where she tries to unmask Spider-Man. And he's like, whoa, whoa, you can't do that. And she's like, well, every you know everybody's read Civil War. They know what you look like under there. And it was like, okay, that was, that was kind of funny. And I wasn't expecting it. And the whole gimmick just... Won me over, so I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be buying friggin' Gwenpool comics now. Look at me, uh, the the me from three years ago would would want to kick me in the uh, nether regions for that, but uh, and especially for admitting it uh, on uh, recorded audio. But uh, Leia Williams, uh, the the thumbs in the middle is is moving to a thumbs up. So, uh, and I agree, I voted for Banshee as mentioned here because I would like Lorna to remain where she's at. Damien continues, Ultimately, I could justify that by arguing that interesting stories could come from Mora's ex being an X-Man, but I did it in an attempt to stop Hickman from writing Polaris. I'll probably be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, we probably both will be disappointed. Damien continues, In reality, the character on the list that I'm the biggest fan of is Boom Boom, but I really don't want to see more of her current characterization. Can you imagine how bad that would be? The writer of Petra and Sway getting a hold of Boom Boom? No, thank you. I agree again. Because Petra and Sway were, uh... Yeah, it wasn't good in that issue. <laughs> that issue of uh, the Empire cash-in was not great. And, I mean, Boom Boom as it is right now is a real hard character to to, to not cringe through when you see her. And uh, under, under Hickman's pencil, I don't know that I'd want to see that either. Damien wraps up with anyway, until Krakoa wins Britain in Bloom, make mine X last. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there and for sharing your vote. For sh- I, f- I completely forgot that the vote was a thing. I-, I voted the day, the first day, and I totally forgot about it after that. But uh, I guess we'll see. Maybe the results, uh, I think the results are probably done by now. I should probably should have done my due diligence and checked. But uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll talk about that another day. Uh, next, we've got a letter from Nicholas also talking about X-Factor number four. He says, I was at a weak point the day that X-Factor number 4 came out. I bought the issue for its Alex Ross timeless variant and out of curiosity for what was going to happen in X of Swords. I have to say that Carlos Gomez's art was fairly decent. Definitely the modern Marvel House style, but it told the story well. The story itself was engaging and almost pulled me in to find out more. I still found I was missing some of the deeper context of the character histories and relationships, but it was helpful to hear you provide some of that context for Polaris and Magneto in your current read-through of it. In the end, I decided to wait for fan reaction to the story before investing in the whole event. It was mixed enough that I decided to wait until it hit Marvel Unlimited. I see that they've caught up with some of the event's issues, so I'll probably listen to your summaries and explanations before running through the event digitally. I hope you're enjoying it so far. I'm still about five episodes back and catching up. Anyways, I actually survived my first foray into X-Madness. You finally caught up to my one issue, and maybe now I can get caught in the X-Lab slipstream and carry forward. Well, that's awesome that you enjoyed uh, X-Factor number four. It was a heck of an issue. It was a heck of an issue, and I I don't know how I would have uh, taken it coming in cold like you did, but uh, it's great to hear that, uh, that you were at least enticed by it uh, enough to consider jumping in. And uh, I haven't looked at any of the fan reaction outside of you know this mailbag segment. Because I don't want to spoil anything, so it's interesting to hear that it's uh, that it's kind of mixed here. I, I, you know me. I always think that my opinions are automatically wrong. So when I have negative feelings about it, I just assume that everybody else is like, "This is the best thing ever," <laughs> you know. Uh, especially when it is, uh, you know, by a creator with with a little bit of a cult of personality around him, with, as Hickman kind of is. But I gotta say that's a it's a a little troubling, but a little refreshing that the uh, reaction has been has been a bit mixed here. And I mean, my own reaction's been kind of mixed. It's a it's a drawn out story. It's a very drawn out story. A lot of filler. It definitely did not need twenty two parts. I mean, twenty two parts. That's that's a long ass crossover, isn't it? I'm trying to think if we've had crossovers that size before. I know we probably haven't in the X Men books. I, yeah, twelve is usually as big as those as big as those get. But uh, twenty two is is a lot of a lot of pages to fill, and damned if they're not filling them. Nick continues. P.S. You can count my vote as a yes for more Juggernaut going forward. Also, I've really enjoyed the recent philosophical discussions on the life and value of Madeline Pryor. It's amazing how the random creative decisions of creators thirty to forty years ago can still bear fruit today. The idea of someone saying, I was a real person as they die, is terrifying. Well, it's great. Another another yes vote for Juggernaut. I think it's unanimous. I, nobody has said not to do more Juggernaut. So uh, I think it's a, a nice, refreshing change from what we get from the X-Books here. It's just a straightforward, fun story with a great creative team in uh, Fabian Niciesa and uh, Ron Gawney. So it's really good stuff. I'm glad everybody's on board with it, and uh, we will definitely get to that once uh, Exit Tens is out of the way. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear your thoughts on, uh, on Madeline here, because those were, uh, those were some heavy issues, and I, I loved talking about them here, because so much of uh, what she experienced was 
sort of kind of relatable, right? I mean, it's just everybody wants to know that they were there, know that they existed, know that they mattered here, and uh, to have it on the page like that, and then have the absolute heartbreak of what comes next with the Quiet Council's decision, it's just some amazing stuff here. And, uh, I mean, hats off to Zeb Wells. I can't say it enough, just killing it on Hellions. Just It is the must-read book of this line, and... Uh, I can't wait to. I can't wait for more. You know, it's really, really good stuff here. So thank you so much, Nick. And uh, you definitely let us know your thoughts on uh, X of Swords as you continue through Marvel Unlimited. Uh, I'm so happy that they're including chapters up on the uh, on the Unlimited site now, so people can actually, you know, dip their toes into this gigantic event. You know, without investing a ton of money in something they may not care about or just may be lost in. So definitely, please let us know your thoughts as you continue. And thanks again for writing in. Uh, if anybody out there would like to write in and join the conversation, please feel free to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or send me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join in the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, 90s X-Men, no hyphen. And if you want to hear more noise, you could do so at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that's going to do it for today, and that's going to sort of kind of do it for the first half of X of Tens here. With Stasis, we're, I think, officially in the home stretch of this massive, massive story. So I want to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Oh